Hello, Katawan Tokyo. Here come the Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Miko Roy Hawkins. Coming up. Pacific countries commemorate Anzac Day and pay tribute to their servicemen and women. It, it does leave, uh, leave us wondering what uh, that respond accordingly uh, actually does mean. The United States draws a line in the sand on Solomon Islands' China agreement. A new champion is crowned in the Super W. The Fiji and Drua etched their name and nation into women's rugby history. And the Fiji and Drua close out a dream debut season with a hard-fought win to clinch the Super Rugby W title. Anzac Day is being commemorated this week across various Pacific time zones to mark the 107th anniversary of the landings at Gallipoli in Turkey. RNZ Pacific's Fino Funur has the detail. It is the 25th of April in the Cook Islands today, and the country is honouring its veterans with a dawn parade organised by the local RSA in Avarua. Prime Minister Mark Brown reminded Cook Islanders to remember their veterans over the Anzac weekend. Cook Islands RSA Treasurer Dennis Duane has been part of organising the dawn parade and assembly. The Cook Islands contribution in World War One was about 650 soldiers departed here. We've got about 23 commemorated as having uh, died as a result of the war, some at the war and some for on sickness, mainly uh, the uh, flu epidemic. And those soldiers were part of the Maori pioneer contingent they made up, the 4th Company. They went to northern France, the first contingents, and then because of the cold they uh, moved south to Palestine. The legacy of the Cook Islands' military contribution to New Zealand continues to this day, with Cook Islanders continuing to enlist in the New Zealand Defence Force. Mr Duane, who served for the New Zealand Army in Vietnam, says Anzac Day is a time of reflection for veterans of all wars. I'm a Vietnam veteran, and, and we always reflect on those that died either in front of us or from our, our units that we were with, and then on, the, on a wider scale when you weren't there. You know, we knew everyone knew everyone, so when someone died, it was a, a very uh, sad uh, occasion, and I would say that would happen to uh, any, any unit and in any war. On Monday, Tonga paid tribute to its war veterans with a dawn ceremony held in Nukualofa. Ambassadors from Australia, Japan, China, the United Kingdom and New Zealand attended the ceremony which took place on the Royal Palace grounds with prayers and hymns sung by His Majesty's Armed Forces. Anzac Day is a public holiday in Tonga, held in honour of the country's contribution to World Wars I and II. Two Tongan soldiers were killed in World War II during the battle for the Solomon Islands. Tonga Navy officer Sione Ulakai acknowledged the Anzacs. We are celebrating the life of brave soldiers whom at this time, 107 years ago, been fallen at the beaches of Kalibari during the Great War. In New Zealand, thousands of people turned out on Monday to remember those who died and served in past wars. 
Despite concerns the numbers would be low because of the COVID pandemic, there were large crowds for the dawn service at the Pukeaho National War Memorial Park in Wellington and at Auckland's main service at the War Memorial Museum. Dame Cindy Kiro paid tribute to the last remaining member of the 28th Maori Battalion at the National Anzac Service in Wellington. She said Robert Gills, known as BOM, will be knighted this year for his services to Maori and to war commemoration. Dame Cindy says he enlisted in 1943 at the age of 17 and served in Italy, including in the Battle of Monte Cassino. Generations have learned much from veterans like BOM about the meaning of service, sacrifice and true generosity of spirit. The president of the RSA in New Zealand, B.J. Clark, said the Anzac tradition was formed at Gallipoli and he paid tribute to troops who have served in many battles. We remember those who fell on the veldt in southern Africa, in the valleys and the ridges of Gallipoli, in the sands and terraced hills of the Sinai in Palestine, in the mud of France and Belgium, on the sands of the North African desert, among the mountains and olive groves of Greece. B.J. Clark ended the dawn service in Wellington with this traditional prayer. They shall grow not old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. The United States has drawn a line in the sand for Solomon Islands regarding its recently signed security cooperation agreement with China. In a meeting on Friday, the U.S. National Security Council Indo-Pacific Coordinator, Kurt Campbell, conveyed Washington's concerns with the treaty to the Solomon Islands Prime Minister. Mr. Campbell told Manasseh Songovare they respected the right of nations to make sovereign decisions, but warned if steps are taken to establish a de facto permanent military presence, the United States would then have significant concerns and respond accordingly. Joining me is Massey University Defence and Security Senior Lecturer Dr. Anna Poles. Bula, and welcome back on Pacific Waves, Anna. Let's start with the security agreement itself. We're yet to see the final document, but we have seen a leaked draft and heard recently from a Solomon Islands government MP that the final agreement is not a whole lot different. What in that draft would be of concern to you if carried through to the final document? Nisam Bula, thank you very much for having me back on, on Pacific Waves. That's a really important question because, as you know, we haven't seen the official signed version, but as uh, Danny Solomon Islands politician Danny Phillips noted in a webinar last last week, uh, the the signed version uh, is is close to to the draft that was leaked in March. Now there are a number of provisions in that draft agreement that are concerning, uh, and what I would particularly find uh, concerning is the the vagities and the ambiguities in in that draft. And if you compare it to, for example, the Australian-Solomon Islands Bilateral Security Treaty, which enabled the uh, intervention of Solomon Islands Assistance Force, of which New Zealand was part of, uh, to support uh, to respond to the rights in November last year, that that treaty is very clear, it's very unambiguous, but the draft security agreement between China and Solomons lacks 
that that level that level of clarity and there are some critical provisions in there which i would be concerned about one of which relates to the uh, there needing to be agreement between both parties between china and solomon islands about the release of any information about the security cooperation agreement and that's reflects a degree of, of, of seeking to control the public narrative controlling how much information goes into the public domain and that would be really worrying uh, for me and then there's the other uh, broader kind of more ambitious elements within the agreement which relate to uh, the provision of, of Chinese security personnel to protect Chinese nationals and projects in, in Solomon Islands uh, as well as the reference to uh, ships stopping over or transiting uh, through the country. Uh, and, and those, again, the lack of clarity, the, the ambig ambiguity around the agreement is deeply concerning. Now, since the, the, the leak, and in the past few weeks in particular, we've had um, uh, a flurry of visits to Honiara, um, the intelligence chiefs from Australia, um, Seselja, was there and uh, mm. just last week the u.s officials from from dc which is a rarity um do you think the the u.s visit in particular is is a signal that washington isn't satisfied with its pacific deputies performance in this regard i think there that the fact that the um the u.s indo-pacific coordinator kurt campbell and his delegation visited Honiara so quickly after, uh, in fact, it was only, they were there only days after the signing of the agreement, um, does reflect concerns in Washington uh, that perhaps Canberra and Wellington are not as across the geopolitical dynamics in the region as, as Washington would hope them to be. I think, but we also have to keep in mind that that also suggests that uh, Washington perhaps thinks that Canberra and Wellington have you know, greater influence or greater capacity to influence in, in the Pacific than either country actually do. Uh, and we've, we, find we need to much better understand those dynamics, uh, the influence dynamics, uh, for want of a better word, uh, to understand how effective both Canberra and Wellington are in, in the region. The Washington delegation to Honiara uh, also signaled, uh, was seeking to signal long-standing concerns that the US has been absent from the region uh, for quite a long time, that the US has not been consistent in its engagement in the region, uh, and, that it, and that Washington itself recognizes it needs to step up in the Pacific. Now, the, the tone of the U.S. visit, just from what we are seeing publicly, seems mild compared to the to the Australian and New Zealand messaging. So like like just acknowledging the, the sovereignty of the decision, continuing and strengthening the relations, as you said, compared to Australia and New Zealand actually voicing concern about the, the treaty. It, what do you think of the difference there in the in the in the tone of the visits? Well, there certainly were some some subtle differences between 
the language used uh, by uh, by the United States as compared to uh, Australia particularly. I think we need to keep in mind that a lot of the rhetoric coming out of Australia is reflective of, of it being uh, election uh season uh, in, in Australia. Uh, but I also think there was a, a, a phrase used uh, in the uh, White House readout of the visit where it refers to that if any type of Chinese military installation or base uh, is established or that they seek to establish any type of presence in Solomon Islands, that the United States would respond accordingly. Uh, and that phrase, respond accordingly, has raised uh, some concern uh, in Solomon Islands and, and across the region about what it actually that means. So whilst it, the, the overall uh, sense is a, is a sort of a, a softer, less foghorn diplomacy than we've necessarily seen out of Canberra, perhaps, um, it, it does leave uh, leave us wondering what uh, that respond accordingly uh, actually does mean, and and importantly also, what actually can the United States do uh, if China does seek to, with the permission of Solomon Islands government of the time, to establish some type of military presence in the country? The Concerns about this move by Salman Asasangovara and his government haven't only been regional and international. There's also a lot of angst locally, um, a lot of confusion about what this could mean for the ordinary Solomon Islander. What kind of things going forward in the future do you think the Solomon Islanders should be looking to demand transparency from and accountability from the government on this agreement? Well, I think there's long-standing concerns about um, arming police in Solomon Islands. Obviously, those have been key concerns uh, since before the tensions uh, and subsequently. So arming of police, uh, more weapons in the uh, in um, in Solomon Islands, uh, and fears, of course, that they could potentially spill over into other hands. Uh, but also be used in such a way that was um, uh, was you know is, is is in breach of of human rights. Uh, but also, as I mentioned before, the clause around the controlling of 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 information about the security agreement and the ability of the of Solomon Islands media to be able to freely and transparently report on the agreement and on security arrangements between China and Solomons. Obviously, that's a concern too, because that speaks to freedom of the fourth estate and it speaks to the ability of the public to be to be aware of critical issues in their country that affect them. So I think those probably are, are two of the major issues. And then of course there's you know the long-standing concerns about you know the capturing of, of elite of corruption and, and so forth and how that plays out in terms of unequal and equitable development across the country. So you have this, this sort of perfect storm of, of issues uh, concern that will increasingly concern Solomon Islanders. But I think it's also important to note too that um, other countries in the region are also concerned about the agreement. Uh, and we have seen Tonga, for instance, uh, call for the agreement to be discussed at the Pacific Island Forum leaders meeting in June in Fiji. Uh, and so th there is concern that the agreement does have regional implications and could potentially cut across or undermine existing regional security architecture.
The Fiji Island Rua's historic victory over the New South Wales Waratahs in Melbourne on Saturday not only ended New South Wales' dominance of Super W, but may also be opening doors for women athletes in Fiji and around the Pacific. Luenengila to Rocco Uono. A new champion is crowned in the Super W. The Fijiana and Drua etch their name and nation into women's rugby history here in Australia. The Waratahs went into the final as hot favourites with an impressive unbeaten record of 19 games across five Super W seasons. But despite dominating the set piece from the get-go, they were undone by the brilliance of the Fijiana in open play in a nail-biter of a final. Fijiana coach Senirusi Seruwakula praised the women's team spirit after the match. I'm very proud, very proud of the girls, the, the achievement we've, uh, we've uh, done. And, uh, and we thank uh, a lot who's been given us the confidence and the blessings to be here in Australia and competing in this, uh, in this competition. And, and uh, no, mainly for the girls, I'm very thankful for the, for the confidence and for the teamwork and the work rate they, they do up there which uh, show me at the end of the game. Joining me from Suva is RNZ Pacific correspondent Lide Movono, who has been following the Fiji Andros Super W season. Bula Lide, what was the mood in Suva when that final whistle blew? In the dying minutes of that game, in the final play, when Fiji, when Fiji got the final play before they kicked it out to end that match, there were already fireworks coming out all over you know, the neighborhood I live in, which is about 10 minutes away from the city center of the capital, Suva. And that continued for a good couple of hours. Um, there were horns uh, as cars uh, tooted their horns driving by. There were, there were um, fireworks all over the place and people were just yelling. People were just yelling from, you know, inside of their homes, running out of their balcony. Um, this group of women have uh, taken the hearts of every Fijian rugby fan. And that's saying a lot because in a country that's very patriarchal and still very conservative, it is the men's game that holds the attention of the nation. And um, bear in mind that Fiji, uh, Fijians value rugby in a way that nothing else unites this country. It's, it's it crosses barriers of culture, a race, and age, and, and now gender. So for Fiji women to hold attention of a nation that's very patriarchal for as long as this particular team has been unbeaten, and then to go on and win, you know, in such brilliant circumstances, you know, in their debut year and things like that, um, it's completely shattered a lot of uh, cobwebs insofar as Fiji rugby is concerned. There are girls everywhere who now have doors just open for them because it's now okay, you know, almost overnight, but we know it wasn't overnight. It was in a space of, you know, three months or six months, uh, depending on how long these women were based in Australia working to bring back this title. They have just made it possible for young girls all over this country to walk into a rugby field and say, I want to play. Up until uh, not long ago, um, I would say with um, confidence, maybe five years ago, although the work has been done about 10, 15 years back, it was still very difficult for women to play rugby. There are women in this Fijiana team who were chased away, shunned away, not allowed, or in the case of Bitila Tawake, the captain, playing in secret just to be able to get the 
kind of strength to make it into this Vijayana Jyoti. That's amazingly there. And, and you, you mentioned a bit there the struggles with the resourcing as well, if you want to talk a bit about what, what they've gone through. You know, Kuri, there are girls everywhere and women and even, you know, 60-something-year-old women, I'm talking about my mother's generation and my mother in specific, uh, who have been crying every single weekend that this Vijayan and Drua team have played in Australia and who whose cries are because they have watched this team work with almost nothing. Um, the, the world rugby allowances alone are such a stark difference between the men's team and the women's team our men get chauffeured around in beautiful luxury buses to training to hotels uh, to fly out of this country our women ride around in pickup trucks and in definitely not luxury and so you know that's just a very simplistic way of looking at things but you know even at the world cup in um, japan not very many years ago our women stayed in budget accommodation um, a few years before that in america our women were staying in motels, cooking their own food in electric frying pans in, in their rooms, while our men have for decades, for at least two decades since I've been covering rugby, always stayed at, at the very top hotels receiving you know, pampering in order to go and play the kind of rugby that they do. So to see these women work um, despite being uh, accorded a very, very different level of financial support uh, to see them still have to do things in hiding just to be able to display what we now know is international grade rugby um, and come out on top with you know very little is um, just just hard to fathom even it's 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 people are tearing all over this country the men even and people are celebrating men and women alike because this is a team who are in Australia with only one corporate sponsorship and uh, of of course, the government of Australia and Australian rugby sponsorship, whereas our men are in, in no short supply of corporate uh, companies here and in Australia, you know, wanting to get their branding on the Fijian Drua jersey. But this is a team that's gone with only one company, one now very well-known local grocery company um, who are willing to put their money where their mouth is. So uh, lots of emotions, lots of excitement, but also I think lots of hope in what is now going to be a very, very different future for the women's game here in Fiji. Vinakali there. And, and what's next for the Fijiana uh, Ndrua? It would have been great if the Fijiana Drua could come home because there are so very many happy people here, you know, wanting to lift them on their shoulders, wanting to put them on the pedestals that our men normally enjoy. But unfortunately for these women, or maybe fortunately, depending on, you know, where you're standing on the edge of the field, uh, these women have a test match with the um, Australian Wallaroos, the Australian National Women's Team, and also the Japanese National Women's Team, which is great for the Fijiana Drua because they're currently ranked um, 21 or, or 23, if I'm not mistaken, behind some very unknown uh, rugby playing, non-rugby playing countries. So these two matches are crucial for the Vijayan and Drew team because it means an improvement in their rankings. And, and as you know, the higher up the rank you go, um, the better the test matches you can have and the better exposure you can have um, to international grade and world-class rugby. So they still have a little bit of work to do, but as these women have shown, apparently they're very, very good at the work they chosen to do. 
That brings us to the end of Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, or Apple Podcasts. Until next time, more demanda. <laughs>